Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. In this week's episode, British businessman and long-time Brexit campaigner John Longworth explains why he dramatically broke away from his long-time ally Nigel Farage. During the 2019 general election campaign, he publicly called on the Brexit party leader to stand down candidates in Conservative seats and asked people to vote Tory at the general election instead of his own party, leading to a rift with the former UKIP leader that hasn't been healed. I'm delighted to be joined today on the Critic Podcast by John Longworth, who's the chairman of the Independent Business Network and uh, the chair of the Centre for Brexit Policy. Welcome to the Critic Podcast, John. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, I thought we could talk a bit about your uh, your role in Brexit. You've been involved in Brexit for a number of years. You uh, were the uh, Director General of the British Chamber of Commerce, uh, where you were forced to resign. Do you want to just start with that? I mean, what, what happened there? You, you were the head of a, a business lobby group, uh, a very prominent business lobby group, and uh, you came out in favour of Brexit and started making speeches. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, um, the uh, lobby group had actually looked at the issues around uh, the referendum back in 2015, and we'd written an open letter to David Cameron, setting out our red lines, our minimum requirements for the negotiations. I have to say, in a sense, it was a bit of a trap, because this was designed 12 months before he came back with his ridiculous proposals. And I knew at the time he would never achieve what he needed to achieve because he had no intention of doing so. So when he did come out with the ridiculous proposals, we were able to say he'd fallen far short of our expectations. Um, a few weeks later, we had our national conference, which has all the uh, broadcast media uh, in the UK and some overseas uh, and also UK printed press uh, report on it for the business sections. So it was the ideal opportunity for me to really set out why I thought we could do very well outside the European Union uh, economically. Uh, I knew that uh, a substantial proportion, uh, probably about about half at least of the members of the uh, British Chambers, the business members, would actually agree with me on this. Um, But unfortunately, uh, the Prime Minister's office um, put huge pressure on the organisation to uh, have me withdraw those comments. So I agreed with the organisation that I would be prepared to resign, provided they didn't put any limits on my campaigning in favour of Brexit. So you see number 10 put pressure on, uh, number 10 put pressure on you personally too? Yeah, number 10 put pressure on me personally. Uh, I mean, I was receiving abusive calls uh, all day. In fact, even before I made the speech, because I'd gone to the BBC and Wake Up To Money programme, and suggested that we were going to have the health minister say we'd have a plague of boils. Actually, we have now, haven't we? Uh, <laughs> that the uh, mess office would say it would rain for 100 years, that the actual uh, campaign that the government were running, Project Fear, was so ridiculous uh, that it, it was beyond belief. And as soon as I came off that radio station, I was receiving abusive calls from Number 10. Um, and um, obviously not from David Cameron personally, uh, but uh, number 10 also contacted the president of the British Chambers of Commerce when I'd come off uh, stage from the speech and done a couple of television interviews. And the British Chambers were basically uh, receiving threats. 
uh, of course, business organisations need to have access to government. If government threaten them with denying them any access in future, then they're obviously in a difficult position. Um, if we could just set the scene slightly. So backtracking slightly, you're talking about David Cameron's renegotiation. So David, before the referendum, yeah. David Cameron said yeah. he's going to try and renegotiate and he get did. a better deal. And then he's going, to, he did. he's going to decide what to do and which side yeah. to go on. But you're saying, so that story you're saying that you, are the uh, Director General of the British Chamber of Commerce, you have pressure put on you personally. Uh, and indirectly from number 10, because there was a uh, Financial Times story that said Boris Johnson has raised this point and, and alleged that uh, number 10 has put pressure on the British Chamber of Commerce to have you removed. But the Financial Times wrote it up saying he has no evidence for this. Um, well, at, at the time, uh, it was impossible for me to comment because I was uh, under restriction. So you had no evidence. Mm. However, <laughs> so it's, so it's a fact, it's, nonetheless. It's, so, you, so you know from indirectly, but the direct thing, was it staffers within number 10 that were calling you? Yes, staffers were calling me personally and sending me um, uh, texts. But also, uh, I knew they were ringing the president of the, the president's office. Um, I mean, when I made the speech, people in the British Chambers, the, the members of the board, actually said, look, that was, you know, you're selling pretty close to the wind, John, there, but we agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see how it goes, and uh, it didn't go well. <laughs> so then you uh, you left the British Chamber of Commerce, and then you joined the referendum campaign. I did. I mean, I the um, I joined the Vote Leave uh, referendum campaign because obviously there were a number of campaigns operating in parallel, and each of them contacted me in turn to see whether I would be prepared to uh, get engaged. Um, the thing about Vote Leave is that they wanted me to chair the business council and the business council was effectively already a network of pro-Brexit businesses which had regional chairmen uh, who could campaign across the country at local level in favour of Brexit. So it was an extremely uh, useful vehicle for putting forward the economic and business arguments. I have to say, and I have said it a number of times since, that uh, in fact I even said it in a recent article I wrote, that one of the problem, one of the reasons we have problems now on these negotiations is the vote leave campaign proper did not want to address business and economic issues. In fact, wanted to give the least possible thought to those things that they could. They really wanted to focus purely on sovereignty. Uh, however, I and a number of people on the vote leave campaign committee, including Lord Lawson, um, uh, David Owen. John Moynihan, who really were the only people interested in the business and economic issues, um, certainly supported me in continuing to take that fight to the enemy. Uh, I think the vote leave campaign itself thought that doing that was simply putting the focus on something that the enemy, shall we say the Remainers, were um, most competent in. Uh, But, you know, Linton Crosby wrote in The Telegraph the week after I resigned from British Chambers and joined the vote leave campaign as chairman of the the Business Council, that we were something, I think he said it was something like 37 points behind the Remain campaign on the economic arguments. By the time that we, we came to the fortnight before the referendum itself, the vote, Linton Crosby wrote in the Telegraph that we closed that gap to less than five points. So basically we eliminated the ability of the Remain campaign to use business and economic arguments to defeat us. And had I not pursued that campaign and had the uh, economists for Brexit who were also campaigning uh, and I was liaising with them, had had that not happened, I don't think we'd have won the referendum, quite frankly. 
Dominic Cummings or no Dominic Cummings. When you joined Vote Leave, when you joined the uh, Brexit <clears throat> side, that was a, a massive coup because the um, it was seen to be at the time that the all the business voices were saying, all the major business voices were saying, we're going to be poorer. And it was seen to be the Remain campaign's strongest argument, uh, arguably their only argument, that we're going to be poorer and worse off. Um, and so you do think it was really important then that that, that argument was, uh, if not won, was at least neutralised the main, the Remainers' main argument? Yeah, I think it was hugely important that that argument was neutralised. And the people I've just mentioned who supported me on the campaign committee also thought that too. Um, had we not done it, I don't think we would have won that referendum campaign. And actually, of course, what we were arguing was completely correct because some of the ridiculous arguments that come from the other side, like George Osborne's argument that there'd be half a million more unemployed people the moment we voted to leave, was proved to be completely wrong because actually, on the contrary, the moment we voted to leave that year, there was an additional level of employment of half a million, not less half a million. So on the contrary, it went the other way. Um, the economy was doing very well. But some of the problems we've got now on these in these negotiations have been created by that failure way back for the vote leave people who actually ran the main campaign to address those issues because they didn't really think through what the post-Brexit economic and business policies would be. As a consequence of which, of course, that then allowed a Remain administration run by Theresa May and Philip Hammond to shackle us to the EU with the withdrawal agreement, which is self-harm writ large, uh, unbelievably. I mean, why you would negotiate against your own country, I have no idea. Um, And what Boris Johnson is now facing is being shackled by that withdrawal agreement. He's between a rock and a hard place because he now has to deal with that aspect of it and deal with the demands of the EU and the continuing demands of the Remain business establishment in the CBI, um, which actually works against our country's economic interests. Um, So you you joined the Vote Leave campaign, you uh, helped to neutralise the (coughs) arguments uh, against Brexit uh, in terms of business, and then on the 23rd of June, the Brexit campaign wins. What are your yeah. levels of cynicism at, at that point? Um, well, none. I mean, I was delighted. Um, you'd be surprised how many people were delighted. I know half the te- technical crew of the BBC spilling out of um, Millbank were congratulating me on the street for having won. Of course, the presenters didn't like it, but most of the cameramen thought it was fantastic. Um, the truth is that um, there was then, of course, a hiatus uh, about... Boris being unfit to lead and Michael Gove's uh, position on that and all that business, which was very depressing. <clears throat> there was no real um, management of the issue, which, as I say, allowed a Remain administration to effectively get a hold of things, although it wasn't clear at the time yet whether, in fact, Theresa May would be on, which, you know, which side of the fence she would be on. In fact, even at the point of the Lancaster House speech, it appeared like she had the right idea. And then by the time she made the Florence speech, it was very clear she didn't. Um, <clears throat> but what what then happened, of course, is I then sort of disappeared off doing uh, some travelling, um, reintroduced myself to my wife that I hadn't seen for four months. Um, and for two or three months, that's what we did. I'd expected the Vote Leave campaign to continue 
its work and had, had actually been asked by Matthew Elliott to chair, to continue to chair the business and economic part of that. But Matthew chose to wind it up out of the blue. I received a communication which was very surprising. And as soon as I had that communication, I then contacted Richard Tice, who I knew had been thinking of setting something up himself. And we agreed to co-found Leave Means Leave, because I was very clear in my mind that while many of us thought it was Japanese soldiers fighting in the jungle in 1965, not knowing the war was over, I believed, on the contrary, that the war definitely had not yet been won. There was a, there was a kind of uh, a civil war there going on during the referendum campaign between Vote Leave, uh, the more conservative party uh, voice of Brexit, <coughs> and between the Leave, uh, not Leave, Leave.eu yeah. and UKIP side of it. So that was a, a big civil war that went on. It got quite ugly. Do you yeah. see you joining um, you joining Richard Tice to fi- found Leave Means Leave? Was that a kind of coming together of, of both sides, or was that you joining the kind of the former enemy camp. No, no, it was coming together of, of both sides. I, mean, I didn't see anybody as an enemy, frankly. I mean, this was all to do with the eagles and the people running the campaigns. Um, so as I was concerned, my only consideration was Brexit uh, and has been all through. I, mean, I have no uh, political ambitions, shall we say. In fact, uh, the further away from politics I can get, the, the, the better, cleaner I feel most of the time. Uh, but nonetheless, um, coming together with uh, Richard Tice was a coming together of really those two uh, sides of the equation. And we had one th- one objective in mind, which was to actually make sure that we had a proper uh, delivery of the Brexit promise. Um, and Leave Means Leave campaigned continuously from the autumn of 2016 right through until um, the European elections in uh, 2019, isn't it? Gosh, so we, you know, we were um, on that campaign trail. We were the first people to call out Theresa May after the foreign speech, even when many Conservative MPs were saying, oh, this is rather good. And actually, it was very plain. It was absolutely disastrous. But she she was determined to sell the country out, shackles very closely to the EU, so that we would either... I mean, I can't imagine why she did it, actually. I, I still still puzzles me. But it's very clear that Hammond and May wanted to have a situation where Britain would not do well outside the EU, but we would be so closely aligned to them, it was easy to rejoin. So it would provide both the motive and the means for us to actually go back in. Um, and, you know, it got so problematic. I think we've all sort of forgotten with all this COVID stuff and everything that's happened just how dramatically awful it was um, two years ago, where it appeared the government were trying to do exactly what I've just said. We had a Remainer parliament, lots of legal actions going on, all trying to totally undermine Brexit and the uh, democratic will of the people. Uh, And it got to that point where um, Richard and I organised the March to Leave, which was um, a sort of reincarnation of the Gerard March. So we recruited 100 people who were prepared to walk all the way from Sunderland, which had been the first to declare for Brexit, uh, to London and um, have others join us along the way. And I have to say, I mean, that was quite a life experience in many ways. I mean, you know, it was not only a great bunch of people, but I'll never forget the amount of support. I mean, it was incredible. 
uh, we would turn up uh, on main roads or on our way into town as soon as people realized who we were, they were honking their horns in support. Uh, it was an amazing experience uh, for everybody concerned. It was the only way that sort of direct action to actually get any message through. But in reality, the only thing that Parliament and the government were listening to at the time, the only thing that they would make them change their minds was the threat that they would lose power. Um, so when uh, Nigel Farage decided to set up the Brexit party and he asked me, would I be prepared to stand as an MEP for that party in the European elections? I said, yes. For me, the European elections were a sort of massive opinion poll uh, without any consequences, because actually voting for MEPs uh, didn't change the leadership of the United Kingdom, nor did it affect local authorities. Uh, it was a, a way in which people could express a view without worrying that they would end up electing a party in government that would do bad things. This is the May 2019 European elections that, that yeah. shouldn't have happened because uh, the, <clears throat> we should have left the EU by that point. It shouldn't have, no. Although the whole Brexit story I find quite fascinating because, you know, Andrew Roberts wrote an article saying that one of the few ironcast rules of history is the law of unintended consequences. And the whole of the Brexit story has been an entire catalogue of unintended consequences. Uh, right you know, from things like Gina Miller, bless her, um, actually forcing, forcing the government to give Parliament a say. Had she not done that, we would not have got Brexit, because Theresa May would have driven through her terrible deal. So all these things that have happened have had unintended consequences that have been in favour of Brexit. And the fact that we ended up with a European election at the very pivotal moment where it was necessary to get the administration out of power in the UK was perfect timing. You know, the ERG had failed to do it. They had signally failed to do it. Parliament was Remain. The government of the day was Remain. And they were forcing it through. And the European elections came along and burst the bubble completely because the Brexit party... Uh, did phenomenally well, and it demonstrated that the British people weren't prepared to put up with what they were being forced to have. Um, at the end of 2018, you did a podcast with me when I was working at the Brexit Central website, where you were predicting uh, <coughs> civil unrest over the, the Brexit deal. And that was at a time, I remember you were pretty much a lone voice, and Leave Me to Leave were pretty much a lone voice. And when I went to do the recording, your office was full of campaigning uh, posters and leaflets and uh, everything. And you were the, you were basically the only people doing anything for the progress yeah, we side. We were the only people doing it from the autumn of 2016 through to the European elections, really. I mean, you know, most people deserted the field, quite frankly. The RG, of course, had formed themselves up in Parliament, but were incapable of hosting Hammond and May. And um, the Leamy's leave led to the Brexit party in the end because it was we, we recognised direct action, the march to leave was great, but the only thing that was going to actually change things was to throw the government out of office. And the European election was a great vehicle for doing that. And it actually paved the way for Boris Johnson uh, to win the election and to make the changes to the withdrawal agreement, which he did. Um, of course, 
because I saw the whole thing as being a means to an end, that is to say, getting Brexit, as opposed to a political ambition or having power for the Brexit party, um, that's when we parted company, because I, it came very clear to me that um, we're going to end up with a very bizarre situation that having won the European election, the Brexit party was itself going to undermine Brexit um, by effectively denying the only government that could actually get us out of the EU power. Um, so I actually switched sides. You know, I corralled some compatriots and the four of us declared for Boris Johnson. Uh, I said in the newspapers prior to that, um, when I was unable to persuade my Brexit Party colleagues uh, of their of their ways, that actually we ought to put up very few candidates. And then I said that we ought to vote for the Conservatives. So Theresa May joined the Conservatives. Yeah. So Theresa May had uh, she had her uh, withdrawal agreement. She tried to get it through Parliament three times, and she failed to do that. She's ousted from office, yeah. and then there's a new Conservative. Yeah. Leader, that, it did really surprise me when you um, when you decided to break from Nigel Farage because up to up until that point you had been absolutely scathing of the Conservative Party, yeah. and you had not wasted an opportunity to criticise their approach, and you were very scathing about the ERG, and you're very scathing about uh, Conservative MPs in general. Yeah, I think I probably said they were spineless. <laughs> what was that effect? So then, then um, we find you, but you see. Telling people to vote. You see, trying to find a route to a particular policy outcome is a, a an art. Uh, you have to go with the grain that is best suited to achieving that end. If you're interested in policy rather than parties and rather than the egos or politicians or political ambitions, and my sole objective was to actually get Brexit. The only people who could deliver Brexit were a new Conservative administration that actually believed in delivering Brexit. Of course, they had been completely shackled with the withdrawal agreement, and we knew that. I mean, it was no, you know, I, I was fully aware of what the withdrawal agreement was, and that it was a real problem. But if we hadn't got a change of administration to a Boris Johnson-led government, Brexit would not have happened. It would not have happened. And what then happened was that we had Brexit and we have actually left the European Union in terms of our uh, political and sovereignty um, purposes. We've, we've left the European Union. And Boris did do one significant thing with the withdrawal agreement. He got us out of the customs union because the withdrawal agreement that Theresa May had drafted had us in the, in the customs union which would have meant we would have no control of our own, over our own tariffs and we would not have been able to do any trade deals anywhere. Now, he did at least do that, but I'm not sure, in fact, I'm pretty darn certain, uh, that Boris Johnson didn't really understand the withdrawal agreement. And um, what he was left with then during this transition period negotiation was a withdrawal agreement that had been improved but still had very significant problems for Britain if we wanted to deliver the Brexit referendum promise, control of our borders, control of our sovereignty, control of our own money, uh, control of our trade. 
because the withdrawal agreement is uh, sort of thinning the wedge poison pill, which enables the European Union to use the Northern Ireland Protocol tail to wag the UK dog. Talk me through uh, the split from Nigel Farage. Um, well, it's not much to say, really. I mean, I made my views clear um, privately and then within the press when that failed that actually I thought we ought to put up very few candidates because the only thing we might be the Brexit party could do in the general election context, which was not a, um, a referendum, uh, or uh, nor was it a European election where there was no consequences for government, where people would vote for all sorts of reasons because, and party loyalty would be involved. The only thing they could achieve in a general election was to, to deny the Conservatives a majority. There was a point at which the Brexit party were ahead in the polls for the general election polls. Yeah, for a sort of scintilla of a moment, mm. a fleeting glimpse of, as soon as everybody got involved, you know, focused on election campaigns, that was a completely different story. The only party that could deliver Brexit was the Conservative Party. And to deny them a majority to have a hung parliament would have been horrendous because it would have put us right back to where we started. And it was important, therefore, that the Brexit Party didn't do that. Um, and, um, you know, it was also important in my mind that actually they didn't just get a majority, they got a good majority and cleared out the Remainers out of Parliament. And that's actually what happened. I mean, that's not to say, of course, that the rump of the Conservative MPs aren't themselves uh, Remainers or soft Brexiteers. But nonetheless, it cleared out a whole swathe of people. And all these people who were tramping up on television, um, lauding themselves, whose names I can't even remember now. And that actually sort of says everything you need to know. I mean, who were they? So you tried to persuade Nigel Farage, you said, look, you need to stand down the candidates in the general election, otherwise the Conservative Party aren't going to get a majority. And he said... Well, there was a, there was a reluctance uh, to contemplate anything like that. It did eventually come uh, along, um, but there was a reluctance to contemplate it. And there's, um, um, the basic party had an ambition to be a party of government, a party of power, you know, a party that actually had MPs in Parliament, uh, a substantive nature and so on. And it simply got to a point where it appeared to me that the Brexit Party was going to do something that was absolutely astonishing, which is the Brexit Party would undermine Brexit. So, but Nigel Farage did eventually make the decision to stand down candidates in uh, seats that Conservatives held. Hmm. We, did you contribute to that decision? Who knows? Because um, the leadership of the party stopped talking to me the moment I actually put anything in the press about it. Mm. So uh, there was very little communication, even though I was still involved in as an MEP, and uh, along with the three other MEPs who joined me in leaving, in calling for people to vote Conservative, and eventually leaving the party and joining the Conservative MEPs. Mm. So you um, you made this decision, you put pressure <coughs> on Nigel Farage because you believe that the Conservative parties could deliver Brexit. And at the time you... No, I, I, believe, I believe the Conservative party was the only, was the only party, party that could deliver Brexit. But you were you did say some positive things about the withdrawal agreement. You said that it, Boris Johnson had improved it. You he said had. that he got this out of the customs union and you said it removes the loaded gun of the Irish backstop and makes it clear that migration would be controlled. Yeah. Well, it has. Made, I mean, it did. made clear that migration would be controlled or at least could be controlled. Um to the extent to which the government will actually deliver that remains to be seen. Prince Patel has declared that we now have control of migration. Mm. Well, it remains to be seen. The proof of the pudding will be in the figures, won't it? 
Uh, and um, the, it, what it did was it did remove the Irish backstop in the way it was designed um, originally, in the way that Theresa May feared it would be uh, implemented. But what it didn't do was what it what the withdrawal agreement still did was actually tie the UK to the EU by using uh, the single market of the Northern Ireland um, single market to buy a services route actually affect what we do in Great Britain. So I'll give you an example of this. I mean, the classic example that uh, as we, you know, I've quoted in articles and also written reports on, is let's just take Nissan as an example, that well-known French motor manufacturer, as it's owned by Renault. Um, if, if the Japanese company Nissan uh, says to the UK government, we'll, we'll actually build another plant, we'll build our electric cars in the UK, uh, and we'll continue supporting the UK. But if there's tariffs erected by continental Europeans, we want you to compensate us for that. Now, they have said that, mm. actually. Um, the, what, what could easily happen is that the European Commission or some other in, uh, interested party could take a case the European Court of Justice to say that because theoretically Nissan could sell cars in Northern Ireland, even if they don't actually do that, because they could theoretically do so, they would actually be undermining competition within the European single market, because Northern Ireland is effectively counted as part of the European single market, and therefore would be unfairly competing with competitors from the continent. As a consequence of which, the UK government would not then be allowed to give any support to Nissan in the northeast of England, because theoretically it could actually undermine the single market in Northern Ireland. Now, that could be applied to anything. It could be applied to regional policy, tax policy, direct support to industries, because the European Union define state aid very widely indeed. It's not just giving bugs to British Leyland. It's tax policy. But this is the, this is the withdrawal agreement that you supported. Now, this is the withdrawal agreement that Boris Johnson was left with after he made his changes. It was a choice between saying to myself, the only way we're going to get Brexit is to support a Boris Johnson administration, because at least they believe in Brexit, and to clear out this Remainer Parliament. But we're left with this rump withdrawal agreement. Um, or we cannot support that. We'll have a minority uh, Tory government or a very small majority and uh, a Remainer Parliament, and we won't get Brexit at all. So it was the devil in the deep blue sea. The thing to say, to say, however, on top of that, because it's a little bit more optimistic than that, so the other side of the coin is always two sides of the story, the government have tried to do some stuff. Yes. The thing that, in fact, some of the ERG members uh, wanted to do from the very beginning and thought would solve the problem, or doesn't entirely solve the problem, and that is... They tried to put legislation through Parliament, it is going through Parliament at the moment, which would enable the UK government, if the EU were applying onerous conditions on anything that we do, to make it impossible for the UK courts to enforce it. So 
what you effectively have done is domestically neutralize the withdrawal freedom. So the government have got this sort of backstop uh, emergency push the red button plan, where if the EU or the European Court of Justice decide to try and make us do things that we would otherwise think are uh, onerous and impinge on our sovereignty, that they could stop it being enforceable in the UK. And all this business, by the way, of international law is a complete nonsense, it's utter faux horror on the part of the Remainer left liberal cabal. There is no such thing as international law. These things like withdrawal agreements are simply agreements for the time being between sovereign states. There is no, no there is no global parliament, there is no global court, and there is no global police force. The idea that there is international law is a nonsense. All there are are agreements between sovereign states for the time being. And that's what the withdrawal agreement is. So your rationale at the time was um, you probably would have preferred the Conservative government at the time to stand on the 2019 manifesto saying that they're going to rip up the withdrawal agreement. Yeah, I would have. Uh, but I mean, that's what should have happened four years ago. And I was saying it then yeah. that actually the UK government, when Theresa May took over as Prime Minister, the opening gambit of the UK government should have been with the EU. We're leaving without a deal, I'm going to WTO terms. But if you want to talk to us about a free trade arrangement, our door is open. So and had they done that, we would have been in a, a completely different place now. But so the idea, but, so you thought uh, the Conservatives aren't dropping that idea, they're sticking with the modified withdrawal agreement. Yeah, uh, I mean, it remains to be seen whether, um, what they should do right now is to actually say to the European Union, you've acted in bad faith, You've not made best endeavours. The withdrawal agreement was contingent on getting a free trade arrangement. You've not delivered that, therefore the withdrawal agreement is null and void. So they, they agree the withdrawal agreement and then rip it up later. That's that no, they should do it now. Okay, but that's they've got to do it before the transition's over. Otherwise, we're actually landing with the withdrawal agreement, so it becomes much more difficult to extricate ourselves. So that was your rationale for the let's be conservative because we can rip up this treaty later. That's the kind of Dominic Cummings approach, wasn't it? Yeah, we could do it. Well, we had there was no choice. It was either put put this government in place to do this negotiation in good faith as a leave government mm. or have no Brexit at all. Um, what effect do you think Dominic Cummings' leaving is going to have on the negotiations? You must have worked with him vote leave. Were you part of his faction, the faction of vote leave that he seemed to be, be part of? Um, no. <laughs> I mean, Dominic Cummings uh, was sort of the inner core of people running the campaign overall. I don't think he was very keen on pursuing economic and business arguments for the reasons I've given already. Um, he had a particular style, which wasn't my style, um, and um, he had some of his rationale uh, for reasons why he might decide to do things I found quite bizarre. Uh, he certainly isn't all scientists. Um, bearing in mind that I actually started as a scientist and have two degrees in science, and I can tell you that astrophysicists aren't necessarily the... the um, the most wise people in the world, uh, whatever Dominic thinks. Um, the, um, what I would say is that 
there is a mixed view. And I don't know what the answer is to that. There's a mixed view, even amongst leaders, as to whether Dominic Cummings leaving the field of battle is good or bad. Mm. I thought it was a good thing that he should actually continue uh, with his work and join Boris Johnson uh, at the time Boris became Prime Minister. I think it was really important to have a radical shakeup of government, and that goes beyond Brexit. Mm. I've been a major critic of the civil service virtually all my career. Uh, and uh, one of the problems that Britain has faced and the reason why we have relative decline is the civil service. But you can almost trace Britain's relative decline back to the formation of the civil service, but that's another story and a bit of history. Um, nonetheless, um, uh, you know, that needed to be done. Uh, whether he's actually achieved anything, I don't know. Uh, I certainly first came across how perniciously self-interested and self-serving they are when I was on Mrs Thatcher's deregulation task force as a young executive. And naively, because of course when you're a young executive, you actually think things are as they seem. Naively laboured to try and get deregulation, only to find that the people who were blocking it left, right and centre with the civil service. Uh, and simply waiting for a new administration so they can bury it and forget it. Uh, and it taught me a lot of lessons that. It also taught me about Michael Hesseltine, by the way, because he was the person leading the campaign and had absolutely no intention of deregulating anything in sight, especially if it meant uh, pointing at the EU as being the culprits. So you're glad for Cummings to shake up the civil service, but you're not, you're not sure which way it goes on Brexit? I'm not sure which way it goes. I, mean, I think it's not fatal, let's put it that way. Mm. Um, Frost and Oliver Lewis are still there. Um, so they've not followed him out of the door, and they seem to be pretty determined to negotiate. But of course, they'll be under huge pressure now to do a deal. And um, you know, COVID sort of muddied the waters on all this. Um, and I can imagine—I mean, I've done lots of deals in my career. Uh, they're, they're sort of, you know, in a hot house situation, locked away in a room feeling massively under pressure to do a deal, start to say to themselves, well, actually, it's okay. I think we'll be, you know, we can do this deal. It's reasonable, it's reasonable. It's only in the cold light of day, three months or six months later, when they realise what they signed up to properly and they start to feel the effect of it. And they realise that the Brexiteers are outraged and angry and that the people of the country decide they'll never vote for the Conservatives again, uh, and the Red Wall disintegrates, uh, that the consequences will come home to roost. So, you know, what I would say to Boris and the negotiators and the Conservative Party balancemen, who are really more self-interested than uh, interested in any particular policy, um, just think very hard about this, because you could end up with with the Conservatives being out of power for more than a generation mm. if they sign up to a bad deal. And regardless of that, you think the withdrawal agreement should be <clears throat> superseded, regardless of the trade part of the deal, because there's two parts, aren't they? We've yeah. agreed the withdrawal agreement and yeah. Northern Ireland Protocol, yeah. and now we're looking at the trade part yeah. of it. And regardless of whatever we do in the trade part of it, you think the withdrawal agreement needs sorting well, out? Well, the, the trade part of it and the withdrawal agreement are intrinsically linked. The, the EU have actually shackled us with this poison pill of the withdrawal agreement in order to control our trade uh, and in order to control our economy. You know, 
the so there are two ways you can deal with that. Well, there are actually three ways, to be perfectly frank. The least effective way is to have the ability to nullify it in domestic legislation, which is what Boris is trying to achieve at the moment. It's a, you know, a very Michael Gold, Dominic Cummings idea. Um, and that might do the job, at least for a while, um, but it's not very satisfactory. Um, it would lead to all sorts of random problems going forward. The second way to deal with it would be to say, you've not negotiated in good faith, you've not made best endeavours, you, the European Union, you're supposed to provide us with a free trade arrangement, the withdrawal agreement is now null and void, so we're repudiating it. This is not an act of uh, piracy on the international stage, it's simply part of a contracted negotiation, an agreement for the time being between two sovereign parties. Mm. So we'll get rid of it. That would be the most effective. Whether we walk away without a deal, Australia deal, or whether we actually have a deal, that's the most effective way of dealing with it. The third way is to actually negotiate something new within a new free trade arrangement, which effectively nullifies the withdrawal agreement, supersedes it. So you can do that too, you could supersede it. You could say, we won't have a level playing field. We, we, we define state aid as X, Y, and Z, which is satisfactory to us, and therefore the withdrawal agreement has to take account of that, mm. and so on. So you can go through that whole process of doing it that way. So there are a number of ways the government could deal with this in the next few weeks. If they leave it in place until after we leave, then that's going to be very difficult. It's just going to lead to long years and years of rancor between us and the EU and internally within the UK and between the UK courts and the European courts and so on. Bizarrely and perversely, this is the law of unintended consequences again. I have actually said internally, shall we say, on a number of occasions, that oddly enough, that might actually work in favour of the leavers because the British people will see it for what it is and get so angry about it, they will become even more resolved never to go back in the European Union. So oddly enough, actually, if all that fails and we leave with or without an agreement, but with the withdrawal agreement still in place, the problems it will cause may actually lead to the UK steadfastly never returning to the EU fold mm -hmm. and steadfastly drifting away. Final question. Are you still in touch with Boris Johnson or and Oliver Lewis, <laughs> the, the former Vote Leave people? Are you still texting them every day saying, keep it up, keep going, keep I think, it I think up? texting them every day would make me a nutter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I am still in touch with uh, everybody who's anybody. So you, you're still in touch with the Prime Minister? I'm still in touch with everybody who's anybody. <laughs> Are you still in touch with Nigel Farage? Um, he tried to leave me couple of weeks ago so he's still in touch with me but you didn't pick up <laughs> no i must have missed it well i think we'll have to leave it there but it's been fascinating talking to you about brexit john logworth uh, and i wish you all the very best thank you if you've enjoyed listening to the critic podcast why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just five pounds by heading to our website www.thecritic.co.uk Thank you.